Well, good morning, everyone, and happy Labor Day weekend. We are glad you are with us. Today, we are launching a 10-week series to help you develop biblical convictions on uh, a number of current hot, highly debated cultural issues like marriage, same-sex marriage, abortion, sex trafficking, poverty, immigration, environmentalism, and frankly, a few more. But today, in preparation for this series, on the front end of the series, what I want to do is uh, lay a foundation. I want to create a framework of this series uh, for this series to help you as followers of Jesus Christ not make an easy-to-make easy mistake. And that is the mistake of losing the forest for the trees, emphasizing uh, important issues like cultural convictions, but missing uh, the larger forest, because we haven't thought about, uh, frankly, the larger and the more complex issue of how we as Christ followers relate to culture. You see, we as, exist as a church not to be shrill, not to condemn, or to withdraw from culture on the one hand. But on the other hand, uh, we exist uh, not to capitulate, not to acquiesce, nor to be silent about the great issues of our day. Rather, we exist as a church uh, to seek to challenge and to influence and transform our culture as God gives us grace. And sometimes we succeed, sometimes we fail. I like the way Russell Moore puts this in his new book. Look at this quote with me. To rail against the culture is to say to God that we are entitled to a better mission field than the one he has given us. At the same time, if we simply dissolve into the culture around us or refuse to leave untroubled the questions the culture deems too sensitive to ask, we are not on mission at all. So my role in this series is to equip you we gather as a church in a moments like this so that when we scatter as the church, as public disciples, our friends, our families, our workplaces, our communities might flourish. We have a public savior who lived a public life, who died a public death, that we might live public, not private, lives as disciples. This is exactly what Jesus means in passages like Matthew chapter 5. Look at these three sentences, verses 13 and 14. Jesus is speaking, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. So we are taking on this, these issues in this series not to condemn, but to help you be salt and light to help you be public disciples, that the people around you might, in fact, flourish. Which is exactly what our Lord said two verses later in Matthew chapter 5, when he said that the people around you may see your good deeds and praise your Father who is in heaven. So today what I want to do is I want to lay two foundation stones that are going to be central to what's ahead that we will come back to in a variety of different ways. And, and the first is this, the gospel must be 
always, always primary. The gospel is, in fact, always, always primary. And the second is that we are exilic disciples. Think of exiles. We are exilic disciples who give ourselves to exilic discipleship. I will explain that later. Now this first about the gospel deals with our, our message, our position. This second about being exilic disciples deals with our role or our disposition. And it's these two together <clears throat> that will help us not miss the forest for the trees. So let's start with the gospel. The biblical storyline is a story with four main parts, four main moves. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. This morning, I want to talk about the gospel in terms of the first three, creation, fall, and redemption. So let's start with creation. Let's go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, where we read... In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In other words, when we come back to the beginning of the Bible and the first four words of Genesis chapter 1, as others have said, are some of the most important words in all of the Bible. In the beginning, God, what we see is according uh, to the gospel, the gospel in the most holistic sense possible, is that the gospel claims God exists. In the beginning, God. And God exists the, before time and, and creation, so God exists apart from time and creation, and God is our creator, God is our maker. Now there's more. We skip down to verse 27, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27, and we read, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, <clears throat> he created them. God has created us uh, in his image. As C.S. Lewis says in his wonderful essay, The Weight of Glory, uh, there are no mere mortals. Every single person we pass by, every single person we see will live forever. No mere mortals. We have been created with an inherent dignity. We are made in God's image that we might bring forth the, the fruit of his abundant creation. So God is a creator. We are made in his image. And as the Bible progresses, the Bible tells us a lot about God. It tells us that God is holy and infinite and transcendent and just. And it also tells us that God is loving, merciful, generous, compassionate, and good. And because God wants us to worship him, God wants us to know him and to love him and to submit to him, he has revealed himself in creation and in his word. Creation and his word. Now, what does God as our creator king have to do with this series? Well, it has a lot to do with it. It means, because we have been made in the image of God, that all of life is sacred from the moment of conception to our last breath. Regardless of disability or disease, all of life is sacred. But it means also, more importantly, that God is our final authority. 
our final authority. It, it, it means that we go to God in His Word. And we understand that we are bound by God's word as followers of Jesus Christ. In the same way, somebody who purchases a new car is bound by the owner's manual of that car. And that's a good thing because it enables us to operate life successfully. But it means more. It means that while our culture tells us that individual freedom autonomy, personal autonomy, and personal fulfillment are all the highest values, we as followers of Christ know that we were not made to live independent, uh, self-directed lives. We know that God is our final authority. And you, can't sim you simply cannot have the things you want. Honor, dignity, meaning, significance, uh, shared values, community, hope, and character without God. I love the way Jonathan Edwards said this 280 years ago when he said, God is the highest good of the reasonable creature. And the enjoyment of him is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. Because God has made us Enjoying him, knowing him is our highest good and the ultimate road to joy and peace and happiness. And finally, what this means as God is our creator and king, it means as we articulate our convictions uh, to the world around us, and we do that as winsomely and lovingly as possible. Now, did you hear me? Winsomely and lovingly? And they're rejected. We pray for the people around us because we know what's at stake isn't a particular cultural issue. What's at stake ultimately is the authority of God in a person's life. And we never ever lose sight of that. Now let me move from creation now to the fall. So turn to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. We've been in Genesis 1, now we're moving to Genesis 3. It'll take us three weeks to get through this message today. Got a long way to go in the Bible. Now the serpent, verse 1, was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now on the surface here, what we have is a rejection of God's authority by Adam and Eve. A rejection of God's will, a rejection of God's word. 
Adam and Eve functionally, in a moment in space and time, turn their back on God's authority. They reject it. And they elevate themselves in, in, in that moment as the final arbitrators of what is right and wrong. They usurp God's authority. They place themselves in authority. We've been doing that ever since. But at a deeper level, Satan, the serpent here, portrays God as restrictive. Kind of holding back. Uh, sort of selfish. Someone who doesn't have our best interests at heart. God knows your eyes will be open, and even though that's a good thing, he, do, he doesn't want that for you. In other words, Satan implies if we obey God, we are limiting ourselves. We will be sorry, we will be miserable, we will be less than whole. So what is Satan doing? Satan is assaulting God's generosity. He's assaulting God's character. He's assaulting God's love. And we have been struggling with that ever since. That's why, and, and this is uh, too big for me to talk about now, that's why uh, on the one hand, uh, millions and millions of people down through the ages have been trying to earn their own salvation, merit their own favor before God. It's a fundamental distrust of God's love. It's why on the other hand, we completely reject God, and turn our back on God, because it's not just an authority issue, but at the core of our being, we can't really believe we are so very loved. It's all here in the garden. Now, let's fast forward to the 21st century in our day. We live in a culture where atheism, moral relativism, narcissism, immorality uh, dominates. But it all has its roots in the fall, in the Garden of Eden. And so we, when we think about what the fall means for us as we move forward on this series, one of the things it means is, should we really be surprised when cultures go south in different areas, in different ways? We as Christians know why that happens. It's the fall. And it's because of the fall that we live in a culture today which, where right and wrong is widely believed to be a matter of personal preference, personal choice. It's Adam and Eve. God, you've spoken, but here's how we're going to operate. But frankly, this moral relativism just doesn't work. Let me illustrate it just briefly with what is called the harm principle. What's the harm principle? The harm principle is this, this notion that I can do anything afoot in our culture today. It's this notion that I can do anything I want as long as it doesn't what? It doesn't harm somebody. Now, those of you that are parents like me have probably heard your kids echo forms of this over the years. Why does it matter, Dad? It's not going to hurt anybody. Well, let's think about that for a moment. The difficulty in the landscape of moral relativism is that who determines what is harmful? Who determines what harm is? And in the absence of moral absolutes, the reality is we cannot agree on harm. So let's take Nepal. 
There's a man in Nepal who is a pimp. And he gives a family $500 to purchase the daughter so he can move her into sex trafficking. Yet he may think he is helping, not harming that family because that family is starving. Who says what harm is? Uh, uh, the harm principle is useless in a, in a culture like ours, uh, in a world of moral relativism. Uh, you see, the, uh, the fall, uh, as we move now into our, our, our Western culture, um, isn't, uh, it hasn't just made our culture a secular culture. Uh, uh, one of the results is we have become increasingly a pagan culture full of false gods and idols like materialism, narcissism, self-love, um, sensuality, and kind of on and on. And the further our culture moves from its uh, Judeo-Christian kind of ethic, and the more we embrace autonomous human reason and authority, and the moral relativism with it, the more difficult and the more precarious it's going to be for us as followers of Christ to live in the world without being a part of the world. So five, ten years from now, we'll do a series like this, and there'll be 20 issues. It's a fall. All right, creation, fall. Now let's go to redemption. 2,000 years ago in the providence of God, in the fullness of time, Jesus Christ was born as a man. Acquainted with sorrow and suffering and grief, even the most unbelieving and secular of scholars tell us that Jesus was a good man. Jesus was a humble man. But the Gospels take it so much further. And they tell us that Jesus set himself apart from everyone else. So, for example, in, in claiming to be the bread of life, the light of the world, in, in, in claiming uh, uh, to be the good shepherd, uh, Jesus uh, tells us in, in effect that the world is lost, the world is dark, the world is hungry. But I'm not. He's not. And he has come to save it. Creating a headlong collision with um, head-on collision rather uh, with culture, Jesus on several different occasions announces that he has the capacity to forgive sins, and he announced that he would return at the end of the age to judge the world and to restore the world. Claiming to be God in the flesh, Jesus said he is the only way to God. So John 14, 6, Jesus' statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one, no one comes of the Father apart from me. <coughs> so it is countercultural and highly offensive today to claim that God is the creator king and we must submit to him, right? 
And it's counterculture and it's highly offensive today to claim that we are sinful fallen people who have sinful behavior, who have behavior problems, I should say, because we have a heart problem, a sinful heart. And then on our, on our best days, we have trouble submitting to the authority of God. But there is nothing more offensive, nothing more countercultural than to assert that Jesus crucified and raised from the dead is the only way to God. And the only way you can know God is through Jesus. And the only way you will ever find yourself is by dying to yourself and living to Jesus. And until that happens, neither will you flourish or the people around you. Uh, so when we see this sweep, creation, fall, redemption, the gospel, Christ crucified, raised from the dead uh, to offer forgiveness and righteousness and eternal life, uh, do you see what this means for this discussion, for this series uh, today? <laughs> well, it means that the gospel alone explains why we are where we are. And the gospel alone is the solution to our problems. It means that the gospel is fundamentally, hear me in this, a positive approach to culture. Because it's good news. Christ has come to rescue us. Christ has come to make us whole. And if in our anger or our shrillness or our stridency we make it bad news, we're missing the point. It means the gospel must be primary because, what, because what's at stake isn't culture. Culture is always temporary. What's at stake are individual lives which are eternal. So as followers of Christ, we aspire not to be a moral majority, but a gospel community where we live as public disciples to take the whole gospel to the whole world. And that's a beautiful, how, how beautiful are the feet? It's a beautiful, it's a, it's, it's a positive thing. Now, Lon and Chris and I, who will be preaching through this series, care deeply about these convictions, these individual convictions we'll be um, unpacking. But I want you to understand they are implications of the gospel. They are not the gospel, and the gospel is primary. All right? Now let me go on. That's our message. That's our position, the, fun, the, the position that ties all these weeks together because underneath every uh, biblical conviction is, is the gospel. So what I want to do now is move from that to our role or our disposition. And I want you to turn with me to a a frankly overlooked passage in the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 29. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 29, and let's begin at verse 1. 
Now, some of you thinking, where in the world is Jeremiah? Well, uh, Jeremiah is right after Isaiah. And if you get to Matthew, you've gone a little too far. And if you get to the maps at the end, you really got to back up. All right, Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 1. We'll put these on the screen. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the who? Exiles. Here's, here, here we go. And to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar, who would have been the king of Babylon, had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Skip down to verse 4, to the beginning of this letter. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have, son, have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage. Now that's among the Jewish community. So that they may too have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Now verse 7. Key verse, underline this, circle this. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Then if you want to jump down to verse 10, this is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place, that would be to Israel. Now this is the 70 year Babylonian captivity, the 70 year Babylonian exile. It's the judgment of God. If you look at verse four, God says to Israel, I've carried you into Babylon. It's a judgment of God against his own people, Israel, because of her unbelief, because of her sin, because of her immorality. And the result was that Jerusalem was completely leveled. The temple was completely destroyed. And thousands and thousands of Israelites were deported into the hated city of Babylon. Now scholars use this to talk about two perspectives relative to how we think about and engage culture. One perspective is what is called the Jerusalem perspective, which refers to the golden age of Israel under David and Solomon, when the watching world observing the, how the prosperity of Israel flocked to Israel to see the splendor of Israel, the wisdom of Solomon. It was a time of unprecedented prosperity and security for the nation of Israel. That's the first perspective. The second perspective is what is called the exilic perspective for the word exile. When Israel, as we see here in Jeremiah chapter 29, is forced to live as immigrants, aliens in a pagan kingdom. And what does God say to Israel? Well, this is where we come to verse 7. God says to Israel, seek the prosperity of the city. What? Babylon was one of the most brutal cities in history. Babylon had just destroyed Israel. And God is saying, pray for Babylon, seek its prosperity. 
Now there's all sorts of questions and issues related to that. I want to leave those over here because I want to wrestle with the question, what is this teaching us about how we as Christians should relate and engage with culture? What is our role? What is our disposition? With the Jerusalem perspective, the world comes to us. Uh, to conform to our values, to conform to our success. But with the exilic perspective, what we see here in Jeremiah chapter 29, as exilic disciples, we recognize we live in a hostile foreign uh, culture, Babylon, and we must go into it to seek to redeem it. It's precisely what God says in verse 7. Uh, so uh, the Jerusalem perspective is all about comfort and security and prosperity. But with exilic discipleship, there's not a lot of comfort. There's not a lot of security. And it's really difficult because we are uh, living in, in, in a nation that's surrounded by people that disregard us, that abuse us, that mistreat us, that do not respect us. And what is fascinating is when we come to the New Testament, it's this exilic perspective that describes the church. We see this in a number of passages. Let me show you two. Let's go to a passage we looked at last week, 1 Peter chapter 2. Dear friends, I urge you, now look at the language as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they may accuse you of doing wrong, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Let's back up a little of the New Testament, go to the Hebrews. Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp outside, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. So the continuity, the, the metaphor that describes the church isn't Jerusalem discipleship, it's exilic discipleship because we are exiles, aliens, foreigners. But instead of being forced into exile, we choose to go into exile because of the gospel and because of our desire to see the world flourish and prosper. So we will expect discomfort, we will expect trouble, we will expect disappointment, and we will be humble servants. Now I want you to see this ch chart that contrasts the two that we went over a couple weeks ago when we were at Princeton. Jerusalem perspective on the left, exilic perspective on the right. What are the differences? Dominant culture versus minority. Kingdom within a kingdom. Alien kingdom. Comfort and security. Discomfort, insecurity. Inward orientation versus, now notice this, an outward orientation. Triumphalistic attitude, servant attitude. And I want to submit to you today that if you and I want to make a difference in our culture as foreigners, as followers of Jesus Christ, we must see ourselves on the right, not the left. And I'm not talking politics, okay? 
as exilic disciples, not Jerusalem disciples. So two points today that are going to tie this whole thing together, that are going to keep us from getting lost in the trees. The gospel is primary. The gospel is primary. It's always, always primary in our lives. And what's our role? What's our disposition? Well, we're humble servants because we're in exile. And so we ratchet back our expectations and we see ourselves as exilic disciples. But the reality is we can't do this on our own. The reality is, and, and we've seen this in the United States over the last 50 years in so many different areas, either we'll lash out at our culture or we'll withdraw from our culture, or we'll be compromised by our culture. What are we to do? Well, the answer, according to the New Testament, is we fix our eyes on Jesus, who left heaven to become the ultimate exile. Homeless, stranger, foreigner, outsider, he died outside the camp. To die on the cross in our place for our sins, it's the table. And when we fix our eyes on Jesus, when we look to Jesus and we keep looking to Jesus and we see Jesus' love for us through his death on the cross, we will die to ourselves. And we will live to Jesus. And then when we blow it, we'll run right back to Jesus. and live for him. Let's pray. Father, I want to pray for these men and women, these students, these children, and pray that you, as we talk about these critical, critical issues, that you will give them grace, that you will help us to understand, God, what you have done for us in the gospel, and you will help us to see ourselves as exiles. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.